Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor live videos. I've got a special live I'm going to do today on getting clear on Joseph Smith's first vision. Let's get this show on the road. All right. Hey, welcome to a special edition of the Backyard Professor Live. I'm doing a research project on Joseph Smith's first vision because of my good friend Paul Osborne, who put some information together. And I looked at his analysis and I said, hey, this is this is really interesting. This is this is worth sharing. Do you mind if I uh, use some of your research in my in my podcast? And he said, absolutely not. Go right ahead. So this is my interpretation of the information that he's putting together along with his interpretation of the theme on Joseph Smith's first vision, which is really quite a surprise to me on the the fluctuation, the change that has happened within Mormonism on such a vital, important doctrinal subject such as God. Now, I've been putting together a new series of podcasts on the backyardprofessor.org on just this subject on the Mormon doctrine of deity. And today I want to do a visual presentation of the first vision directly relating to this concept. Hi, Wendy Rowland. Hey, Heath Hollow. How are you? Thanks for stopping by. Let's take a look at this first vision material that I put together so lovingly for us. Now, this is the depiction of the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision. And in this account, we know that Joseph had not yet developed his doctrine that the Father and the Son were two separate persons. This wasn't revealed until later in the 1835 account and in the 1838 official version of the church. Hey, John Laws, welcome. Good evening to you too, my friend. So this understanding of this view of God in doctrinal terms is expressed fully in the later 1843 revelation. And there it says, the father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. 
The important 1832 account is where we learned that Jesus appeared to Joseph, but nothing here is said or even implied that two personages appeared to him. Only the Lord of glory, who was crucified for the sins of the world, was in that vision. Joseph says, I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else who I could go to and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord, a pillar of fire light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. And I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me. And I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on me might have everlasting life. That's his description of the 1832 account. It's not until the 1838 account, which all of the church art reflects on their first vision views that Joseph Smith said he saw two personages. Originally, this is not what we have. Gordon B. Hinckley, former prophet of the church, stated, our whole strength rests on the validity of Joseph Smith's vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did, then it's the most important and wonderful work under the heavens. Now, this quote to me is highly misleading, if not outright illogical based on historical investigation, and that is exactly what I'm proposing to do in this particular session. Which first vision account is the fundamental question? There isn't just one. Gordon B. Hinckley makes it seem like there is, unlike there's always been. This is highly misleading. And not all of the accounts are the same. They do have doctrinal contradictions between any of the two versions. Well, there's also, though, the historical evolution to the telling of the story, and the meaning has doctrinally changed in serious significance. So this appears to damn Joseph Smith. Now, three brief issues I have that I put down in the lower right-hand corner. The first is the whole strength rests on a man's vision, not on Jesus's infinite atonement. You notice the apologetic of President Hinckley. The second issue I have just off the top of my head is the most important and wonderful work under the heavens. There is no Jesus' atonement for the sins of the world in this vision, though, not the, not the 1832 vision. And the third item is others in Joseph Smith's day were also having first visions as historians such as Richard Bushman, still faithful Mormon historian, and the exquisite historian Dan Vogel have noted. There were many other first visions, and their work is completely ignored by the Mormon church. So there's quite a bit of bias involved is what I'm trying to say here. So I do take exception with Gordon B. Hinckley, and I will show why in this study, why he just doesn't make the cut. This is one of the most interesting things I realized in reading Paul Osborne's work that 
caused me to want to put this presentation together. It was actually from the ancient Egyptian papyri itself, where Joseph Smith learned the plurality of gods. It was also at this time, this 1835, is when he sent Oliver Cowdery to acquire Hebrew grammars and lexicons to study the biblical languages. So these two prongs, these two thrusts, the depiction of the three-in-one gods of the learning of the Hebrew word Elohim, this gave Joseph Smith the basis for his doctrine to many gods. And this was when he began to change his theology and story in the late 1830s to the early 1840s. He claimed he had always taught the plurality of the gods, and this is simply false. Both in the Book of Mormon, it's false. And in the early revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's false. As well as it's false in scriptures like the lectures of faith. So this makes for an interesting idea here. Let's explore this. We go to the King Follett sermon. It was given April 7th, 1844. There were, it was a gigantic assembly, 20,000 saints. It was at a conference of the church and the funeral of a friend named King Follett. It's during this sermon that Joseph Smith said, I want to reason a little on this subject. I learned it by translating the papyrus, which is now in my house. I learned a testimony concerning Abraham, and he reasoned concerning the God of heaven. Suppose we have two facts that supposes another fact may exist. Two men on the earth, one wiser than the other, would logically show that another who is wiser than the wisest may exist intelligences exist one above another so that there is no end to them. If Abraham reasoned thus, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God and John discovered that God the Father of Jesus Christ had a father, you may suppose that he had a father also. In other words, Jesus' father had a father, meaning Jesus had a grandfather. And this goes on and on and on and on. Joseph Smith got this, he says, when he was translating the papyri. This is remarkably interesting because in the pre-papyrus, Urim, Thummim, Seer, Stone, and a Hat, the 18th 30 edition of the Book of Mormon says, He that is found guiltless before him at the judgment day hath it given unto them to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom, to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above, unto the Father and unto the Son and unto the Holy Ghost, which is one God. Now, this is before he ran into the papyrus. In the 1830, in the 1837 post-papyrus edit, he changed the last sentence, which is one God, into which are one God. So we see a definite shift in Joseph Smith's thinking at that watershed moment with the Book of Abraham papyri. 
Very important to keep that in mind. And this is the fragment of papyri that Joseph Smith began to reason with. Notice this three-in-one Godhead up on that far right corner now. Those of you who are listening in on the podcast only, you'll want to look at this video. It's in the Mormon Discussions, Inc. under the live session so that you can see this depiction. Now, the 1832 First Vision account does not preach this plurality of gods. It would be another three years before this was introduced into the 1835 First Vision account. It was the Egyptian papyrus that was the catalyst to this newfounded theology. And the translating of the Book of Abraham and the learning of the Hebrew changed Joseph Smith's theological course and doctrine. And here's how Oliver Cowdery put it when he was looking at this exact part of the papyri. The evidence is apparent upon the face that they were written by persons acquainted with the history of creation, the fall of man, and more or less of the correct ideas of notions of the deity. The representation of the Godhead, three yet in one, is curiously drawn to give simply, though impressively, the writer's view of that exalted personage. And this is precisely where Joseph Smith's theology began to change. Now, Joseph Smith learned from the papyri many principles. He learned about the plurality of the gods. He learned of the gods' intelligences of varying degrees how man and God vary in intelligence, and one is above the other, smarter, more powerful, etc. How Christ is separate from the Father. Also that there were two gods, and they both were gods of flesh and bones like man, but not blood. Because as Joseph Smith came to understand, blood is not in the resurrected bodies of gods, but spirit courses through their veins. You begin to see the fundamental shift here. This is most remarkable. It was from the images of the papyrus that influenced Joseph Smith into transitioning into the idea that one god was three different personages altogether. Smith was introducing a new perspective for Christianity, whereas belief in one God can shift into the plurality of gods. He confessed, more or less, he tipped his hand, that he learned it while translating the papyrus, not by his first vision account that he recorded in 1832, when he reported to see just one personage. And the Book of Mormon reflects this evolution of God, amazingly enough. In the pre-papyrus with the Urim and Thummim, the seer stone and a hat, the 1830 edition reads, Behold, the virgin which thou seest is the mother of God after the manner of the flesh. It also says, The angel said unto me, Behold, the Lamb of God, yea, even the eternal Father. The 1830 also said, It came to pass, the angel spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people. Yea, the everlasting God was judged of the world. After he translated the papyrus, and they updated the Book of Mormon in the 1837 edition, 
Joseph Smith is caught adding some significant words here. Behold, the virgin which thou seest is the mother of the Son of God. Notice, it's not just the mother of God. Now the Son is separated from the Father after the manner of the flesh. You'll see also the angel said unto me, this is below in that green box down there. Behold, the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Notice it used to say the Lamb of God, yea, even the Eternal Father. Post Papyrus, Joseph Smith changed this into distinguishing another deity in the Book of Mormon. He also did it and came to pass. The angel spake unto me again, saying, Look. And I looked and beheld the Lamb of God that he was taken by the people. Yea, the Son of the everlasting God was judged of the world. Not just the everlasting God, which the Son is in Joseph Smith's pre-Papyrus theology. But now it is being separated, the Son of that is fascinating. Hi, Patty Cake. Welcome. Glad you could make it. So we're beginning to see a shift, a change in the theology. Now, this picture on the left shows the 1832 artistic depiction accurately. This is Joseph Smith's own description. I saw the Lord. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. The later 1838, there on the right, distinguishes the two. Historical evidence appears to suggest that Joseph Smith made up the first vision, and he changed it as it suited his purposes through the years. The testimony of two personages was a later construct, enlarging and expanding his doctrinal beliefs, not by discovering scriptural meaning. It's very important to know that this evolutionary development is what Gordon B. Hinckley did not lead onto in his former statement that I showed you earlier. He's just assuming that the first vision has always been of the two exalted separate gods. And that's actually... Not only is it not accurate, but to ignore the historical development through time is to lie about the significance of this whole issue. This is him in the 1832 again. Now, when we look at the visions of the Christian God, those are founded on the ideas that to see Christ is to see the Father. So we see in the 1832 account that Joseph Smith was actually typical in his time, formulating his understanding of what the Godhead entailed. The biblical teaching was the same as Doctrine and Covenants, section 93.3. And that says, and that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. So when we approach the 1832 first vision, it has seen only one person. Thus, the Lord of glory, as Joseph Smith called that person, is seen as God himself, of course, even at his right hand, because Christ is in God and around God in all things, and the God is manifested as the Father and the Son. 
Now, this entirely agrees with John 14, 7 through 9. Hence, the 1830 account is agreeable to the teachings of the Bible. And this is evidence that seeing one person as God was all Smith ever claimed until he got into the Egyptian papyrus. And then he started thinking of the plurality of gods. The papyrus is the really important watershed that it was one of the new things that uh, Paul Osborne helped me see and understand. So Joseph Smith said, I have always taught the plurality of gods. Many say the prophet says there are many gods, and this proves that he has fallen. He said that in the King Pollock Discourse. Well, the problem with what he said in 1844, that he had always taught the Father and the Son are two personages, and that there are a plurality of gods, and he had taught that for some 15 years, that's simply false. He did not teach this prior to 1835. He had steadfastly maintained the teachings of the Bible and the Book of Mormon with regard to the Father and the Son being one God manifesting in their respective roles. So is it any wonder when so many of his followers realized he had misled them for over a decade that they began to leave and call him a fallen prophet? It makes perfect sense. Plurality of gods was never taught by Joseph Smith, not in 1830, 1831, 1832, 1833, 1834 in any of the scriptures, or in any of his sermons, or in any of his letters to anybody else. No one in the church ever taught that doctrine. In the early days of Kirtland, this was never taught, including his own original 1832 account of his own first vision. Oliver Cowdery, his scribe, neither Frederick G. Williams, his other scribe and very faithful friend, None of them knew anything about seeing two personages in the first vision at the grove. No one ever said anything about the separate personages of the father pointing to the son and announcing him until after 1835. Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's own mother, never said anything about it either because she had never heard about it. The lectures on faith, they themselves, they never taught separate personages but rather that the Father is a spirit, the Son is tabernacled, and the Holy Ghost was God's mind. And they are one God. That was clearly the emphasis there. This was scripturally canonized in 1834, and it remained in the canon in the Doctrine and the Covenants until 1921. That's almost 80 years, you guys. And this is when the church could no longer tolerate obvious, sincerely serious questions about the contradictions of the Mormon doctrine of deity. Jesus in the Book of Mormon is the very Father in heaven, manifested in the flesh. That was the doctrine. Very remarkable. So many of the original passages in the Book of Mormon that represent the traditional Christian doctrine now, they were allowed to remain, especially if they were Trinitarian, because too many changes would arouse suspicion that the original work was uninspired. In this passage shown, Zeezrom says, is the Son of God the very eternal Father? And Amulek says, yea, 
He is the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth, and all things which in them are. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So the Book of Mormon here refers to Jesus Christ as the very eternal Father. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. So the Book of Mormon itself teaches that Christ is God and Father of all things. Hebrews 12.9 basically says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Well, Jesus is the Father of spirits, among other things. Very interesting. So when we look into the Pearl of Great Price, we find more interesting confirmation of Joseph Smith's early theology on deity. In the vision of Enoch, recorded in the book of Moses, the conversation between God and Enoch, we have to understand that it's the father doing the speaking because he refers to mine only begotten. It is not talking with the son here, but with the father only. The son says nothing. In fact, the son is something yet to come. For instance, Moses 6.27, and he heard a voice from heaven, Enoch my son, prophesying to this people, on verse 36, he says, And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld all things, and behold all things which were not visible to the natural eye. Moses 6.42, I beheld a vision, and lo, the heavens I saw, and the Lord spake unto me. Moses 6.62 says, This is the plan of salvation unto all men through the blood of mine only begotten, who shall come in the meridian of time. This is why we know this is the Father speaking to Enoch. And then in Moses 7, 3, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory. Furthermore, on these visions of Enoch, now these far exceed anything Joseph Smith said about his first vision. Moses 7, 4, and I saw the Lord, and he stood before my face, and he talked with me even as a man talketh with another face to face. And he said unto me, I will show unto thee the world for the space of many generations. Well, Joseph Smith never got anything like that in his first vision. So this is big stuff happening with Enoch in the Pearl of Great Prize. Again, Enoch meets God. He hears his voice. It is the Lord, but Enoch never said anything about God's body. Enoch speaks face to face with God, but Joseph said God is a spirit in the lectures on faith at this time before 1835. Remember, this vision in Moses was given to Joseph Smith while he was translating the Bible in Genesis, right? You remember that? 1830. So this is pre-1835. Moses 7.24 says, Enoch is lifted up into the bosom of the Father. When we turn to Moses himself instead of Enoch in the Pearl of Great Price, we find a full-blown vision discussion with God with Moses. 
Moses 1-2, and he saw God face to face. There it is again. And he talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore, Moses could endure his presence. Here, Moses is given the full-on personal encounter with the God of the Old Testament. That is a face-to-face encounter between two persons and two persons only. Moses 1.3 says, God spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I am the Lord God Almighty. Notice that, Almighty. And endless is my name, for I am without beginning of days or end of years, and is not this endless? So Jehovah is announcing his greatness to Moses as the Almighty, and there is none greater than him. Jehovah looks down. He does not look up. Absolutely everything is beneath him. He further says that in 111, he was transfigured, Moses was, and he was changed so that he could endure God's presence. So Moses saw God's face and encountered his personage up close and personal, as it were, and there were not two personages or two gods in this vision. Only God Almighty, not two embodied deities who were visiting Moses. This is in the 1830 era. Further, Moses 1.6, And I have a work for thee, Moses, my son, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten, and mine only begotten is and shall be the Savior. Notice the future tense. For he is full of grace and truth, but there is no God beside me. And all things are present with me, for I know them all. So notice what Joseph Smith is saying here with Moses. In the future there shall be the Savior, rather than is the Savior. So other scriptures given by Joseph Smith attests that the Son assumed the role of Savior immediately after Adam fell. But in this account here, we have the father telling Moses that his only begotten son shall be the savior as if later down the line. All this is a clear indication that it's God the father that is doing the speaking and that the son will be manifest later, exactly like explained earlier to Enoch. Do note that Jehovah makes the point that there is no God beside him. There's only one God and he's it. So Moses stood before God face to face. Now, it's at this point, if there was ever a time in which Moses and Joseph Smith would know that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, this is the moment. But no, it's not a part of their testimony. God having a body isn't important to anyone to know until 1843, 13 years later to meet the needs of Joseph Smith's changing theology. This is really remarkably interesting. Now we can turn to the account of the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon and find some remarkable ideas. In line with this idea of uh, how the doctrine of God changed in Joseph Smith's theology. The testimony of the brother of Jared that God is one person 
who is expressed differently in different ways. He saw one person who is the Lord, the Father and the Son, the very God of the Bible. Ether 3.16 says, Behold this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit. And man have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. One person is what Joseph Smith said in his own 1832 account of the first vision. Two persons, one pointing, are all later constructions of Joseph Smith's changed theology. And the brother of Jared's vision in the book of Ether in the book of Mormon in the 1830s point that out as well. It's perfectly consistent with the pre-papyrus change Joseph Smith made. Furthermore, the Book of Mormon account of the brother of Jared having a personal encounter in the very presence of God himself claims to exceed all of the other previous experiences of all of the other prophets, including pre-flood Enoch, who himself was caught up into God's bosom. So Smith's later account of the pre-flood Enoch in the Book of Moses certainly questions the validity of the claim made in Ether. That claim states that the brother of Jared's vision and personal experience was with God was up to the point the most intimate and divine encounter ever experienced by man in Ether 315. But how can that be since Enoch's account in the book of Moses challenges that assertion? We're led to believe that Enoch's visionary experience in the presence of God was supreme. Being in the very bosom of God is how it was told. In fact, we now have multiple books of Enoch. We have Ethiopic, Hebrew, Slavonic, Greek texts. All of these attest that Enoch even became transformed into the little Yahweh, a God himself. Yet we don't have any other books discovered about the brother of Jared to attest to his personal encounter experience. See, the point is the Book of Mormon brother of Jared's experience discounts Enoch's vision of being in the very bosom of the father and son and watching God himself weep. It seems that Joseph Smith has confused his own storytelling of God granting visions and how it relates to his own experience that he would later tell and how that account would change as his own personal theological grasp of God morphed and changed and contradicted his earlier views. Furthermore, Joseph Smith's description of how the brother of Jared saw the Lord is reminiscent of how biblical Moses met with God on Mount Sinai and that the commandments were written with the finger of God. This finger idea being the key to make things seem biblical in nature. Likewise, the brother of Jared sees the finger of God, and that is what makes the vision expand into a greater experience, much like what we learned about Enoch and Moses, according to Joseph Smith's accounts. Ether 3, 8 through 10 described the finger of God appearing to the brother of Jared. Now, notice that man had never had the kind of faith exhibited by the brother of Jared, and that is why he saw God's finger. But what about Enoch, 
who lived long before the brother of Jared on the other side of the flood? Did he not actually ascend to dwell in the bosom of God? Did he not witness God's weeping and become a God himself while talking with God face to face? See, the brother of Jared is asked, Believest thou the words that I shall speak? Well, what's the point of asking that kind of question when the singular most faithful man who just saw God's finger because of his faith, you know, of course he's going to believe it. That's why he saw the finger of God in the first place. I mean, this guy is total belief. So the brother of Jared believes the Lord, and then he has shown his entire person. But this happened to Enoch also who not only was caught up into God's bosom, but he remained. See, the Book of Mormon account does not grant that, because never before had man seen God like the brother of Jared did, not even Enoch. So there are problems with the accounts that we have in Joseph Smith's scriptures. God is revealing himself as the Father and the Son, one person. They all only see a single person. And that is God. And he's both father and son. That's how that worked. When we turn to the Book of Mormon accounts of the visions, it, notice pre-1835, we're kind of covering all of the visions of the major visions of the prophets in the scriptures before the papyri. And they are all beautifully consistent with the Protestant Catholic Christianity in America in Joseph Smith's day and age. There's no contradictions or problems in any of it yet. Joseph Smith is just simply describing typical Christian visions and revelations in all of the scriptures about God, in all of the visions about God to prophets, Joseph Smith hasn't gotten off track at all. And this is quite remarkable because the claim is there's a restoration of something Christianity lost. Well, it obviously wasn't an understanding of God because all of these descriptions so far in Joseph Smith's scriptures are just like the Christianity in his era and in his hometown. In Nephi 1 Nephi 11, 11, and I said unto him to know the interpretation thereof, for I spake unto him as a man speaketh. I knew it was the spirit of the Lord. See, this is Nephi's tree of life vision. So this is familiar to us. And it reminds us of how biblical Jacob and Moses communed with the Lord face to face, just like friends having a conversation. And furthermore, the spirit is in the form of a man. See, this is Jehovah appearing as he did to all the other prophets. This is exactly what Joseph Smith was originally implying as he told the story while speaking from the bottom of a hat. Very important information. In fact, in perhaps the most important part of the Book of Mormon, in 3 Nephi, where Jesus comes to the Americas. The one and only God of the Nephites make his appearance in America. This is the voice of Jesus Christ in heaven. He's announcing his coming to the Nephites as he glorifies the only personal name that has ever been given to the Nephites to represent salvation. Third Nephi 11.7. 7. 
Behold my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. See, the God of Israel, once again, he's manifested in the flesh to the Nephites, just as he did in the old world. This time, however, he's a resurrected and glorified being of flesh and bone. The only reference ever given to God being a person of flesh and bone is in direct reference to the Son who came down, he was crucified, he rose from the dead in resurrection. The Father is only ever associated with being a spirit who does not have a body of flesh and bone, but is physically manifested through the Son. And then in verse 27, same chapter, the Father and I are one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one in the Godhead, but they're only manifested of flesh ever given of the Godhead is through Jesus only. The Father does not manifest as a person of flesh and bone, ever. <laughs> the Father is never spoken of as a separate person apart from the Son having his own body of flesh and bone. This is really important to grasp the Book of Mormon concept of God. It is entirely Christian. There's nothing new being restored here at all that Christianity has supposedly lost. As today's Mormonism teaches, that's what the Book of Mormon does. It restores parts of the Bible to a better correctness, to a more full, complete doctrine. Well, not on deity, it doesn't. It, it reinforces the Christian view. Third Nephi 11.32 notes that the Son bears record of the Father, and of course the Father is going to bear record of the Son, and of course the Spirit bears record of both of them. Yeah, the doctrine shows how one person is the Lord, and that one person is God. No one ever saw two persons. It's nowhere in the record. That's seriously significant. So that's fascinating. We are in the traditional description of God as a person, as typified in the Old Testament. We get both the Father and the Son. See, in Enoch's vision, he's in the bosom of God, high and lifted up. Nothing is said in regard to the Father having a body of flesh and bones. The Father and Son are one God as expressed in Christendom. Nothing is said about two separate personages. Nobody says anything about God the Father's body of flesh and bone in any of the scriptures Joseph Smith restored to correct false doctrine of God that supposedly came through 2,000 years of apostasy. Nothing is different here. That is seriously significant. So, Joseph Smith taught this. He says, our text says, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. The apostles have discovered that there were gods above, for Paul says, God was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My object was to preach the scriptures and preach the doctrine they contain, there being a God above, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I am bold to declare I have taught all the strong doctrines publicly and always teach stronger doctrines in public than in private, <coughs> except polygamy. <coughs> yeah, let's leave that one out. But even on this score, he misread the revelation. It does not teach Jesus' father has a God above him being the grandfather of Jesus. No Christian ever taught that. <laughs> the Book of Mormon does not teach that. There's nothing in any of the visions of Moses or Enoch or the brother of Jared or anybody that teaches that. Nothing is said about the Father having a God above him. It actually says, now let's take a closer look. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Meaning that we are a kingdom of priests unto God who just happens to be Christ's Father. Did you get that? That's where Joseph Smith misread this. Jesus had said, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So we are to become a kingdom of priests unto God, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the claim that this means a God above God is unfounded, and it's a creative misreading at best. It's not expounding true doctrine from the scriptures. This is simply not a Christian doctrine found in the Bible. Joseph Smith also said that Paul says there are gods many and lords many, and Paul had no allusions to the heathen gods in the text. Well, let's, let's take a little bit closer look at that. Adam Clark, whom Joseph Smith did use extensively for materials, he demonstrated that Paul made direct allusion to heathen gods contra Joseph Smith. Let's take a look at that. Yeah, my cough is because I've been sick. I caught the flu a couple days ago. So thank you. I, I do need to take care of my cough. No, it's not COVID, but it is the flu. Yeah, I know it. No, I've, I've checked. It's not COVID. Thank you for your concern, though. I am I am so determined to teach you guys wonderful information. I'm even willing to do it sick. Yeah, baby. That's because I love all of you, man. My audience is the best audience in town. Give me a couple of likes, would you? <laughs> Let's see what Adam Clark says. There be that are called gods. Well, there are many images that are supposed to be representations of divinities. But these divinities are nothing the figments of mere fancy. And these images have no corresponding realities, whether in the heaven or the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the ocean, the rivers, the trees. So there, there are nominally, nominally gods many and lords many. And one Lord Jesus, only one visible governor of the world and the church, by whom are all things, who was the creator, he is the upholder of the universe, and we by him being brought to the knowledge of the true God by the revelation of Jesus Christ, for it is the only begotten Son alone that can reveal the Father, the gods of whom the apostle speaks were their divinities or their objects of religious worship. See, the lords were the rulers of the world. 
such emperors who were considered next to gods, and surely some of those emperors were themselves deified. So in opposition to the Lord's, he placed Jesus Christ, who made and who governs all things. That's how Paul put it. That's how Adam Clark describes how Paul set up his argument. Joseph Smith misread the argument through his understanding he acquired from the pagan Egyptian papyri. Joseph Smith misread the scripture. He based it on the plurality of Egyptian gods on the papyri. What he did is he read plurality of gods back onto the biblical text. And of course, this resulted in a warping of the fundamental meaning of the only one God that there is. So, very interesting. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants states that God inspired Joseph Smith to translate the Old Testament through Revelation. So we have the ministry of Enoch, we have the visions of Moses, and the foundation of Genesis given by Moses and God himself, the creator, in the book of Moses. See, the account of Moses in 1832 and Joseph Smith's 1832 first vision account contradict his plurality of God's notion that he acquired from the Egyptian papyri. His sermon in 1844 and the publication of the Book of Abraham in 1842 contradicts Joseph Smith's earlier new translation of the Bible and his original belief that God is God. See, that's what it said in the Book of Moses. And it's not God's as given in the book of Abraham. So the plurality of gods is a new doctrine from the Father and the Son, which is one God. And this is the view of Christianity in his day, as well as his own view, until 1835. See, in the Book of Mormon, Amulek told Zeezrom, there is no gods, but there's only one God. It was the representation of the Egyptians' God on the papyri that caused Joseph Smith to part ways with the scriptures he had translated and that he had had revelations about in all of Christianity, the Book of Mormon, his own translation of the Bible, his 1832 first vision account. From 1835 on, Joseph Smith went the way of the polytheistic plurality of gods. Billions of them. Fascinating, isn't it? So here is basically the single most important factor of the 1832 First Vision account written by Smith himself. No scribe was used. He did not dictate this to anybody. It was his involvement, a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and only the Lord. No one else was made manifest to him. So here's how Joseph Smith put it. I cried unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go and to obtain mercy. And the Lord Jesus Christ heard me cry in the wilderness. A pillar of firelight above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. The Lord, Jesus Christ, opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, Jesus Christ. Behold, I am the Lord, Jesus Christ, of glory. 
I was crucified for the world. See, this is the first testimony Joseph Smith ever gave about his first vision. It accurately reflects exactly what he was thinking about, how to relate the special relationship he felt with God in a public way. What we get here in 1832, see this picture that I've got here on the left is a later picture of, of the changed first vision account with two personages. But what we have in the 1832 account is the original the accounts that came later were nothing more than embellishments and add-ons, changes which reflect Smith's changing theology. And what is so significant here is when the 1832 account was discovered by a prophet in Mormonism, Joseph Fielding Smith, he literally tore it out of Joseph Smith's diary and hid it for like 22 25 years. Joseph Fielding Smith immediately saw the implications. We speculate sometimes about the prophets and apostles and what can they know? What do they know? Do you really think they know it's fake? You damn right they do. I no longer even ask that question. I know they know that they're pulling the wool over our eyes on a lot of stuff. The doctrinal implications of this are incredibly fatal to the apologetic claims of Gordon B. Hinckley. And Joseph Fielding Smith knew that. His actions prove that. So that's why this is so significant. And again, Boyd K. Packer, the idea, well, you know, why do you historians want to always tell everything? Well, why do you prophets, seekers of truth, and the light bearers want to keep hiding everything? Is our question back to them. Yeah. It's because they built up a false image. And that's too bad because the truth is going to win out eventually anyway. That's how this works. So finally, we get a most interesting thing here in the Kirtland Temple testimony of both Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. The Doctrine and Covenants 76, 12 through 14. By the power of the Spirit, our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God even those things which were from the beginning before the world was, which were ordained of the Father through his only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, even from the beginning, of whom we bear record. Now, and this is the important part, seriously. And the record which we bear is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son whom we saw and with whom we conversed in the heavenly vision. So Smith here is equating God as being from the beginning in biblical terms. This means from everlasting, Psalm 90, verse 2. See the Father and the Son from everlasting, even Jesus. Neither member of the Godhead precedes the other or is older than the other. They are one and the same. Well, who do they see? 
In whom did they claim to converse with? Jesus, of course. They did not see the Father as a separate person here. They did not converse separately with the Father as a person of flesh and bone. They only ever saw the one God manifested as Jesus in the Kirtland Temple. Now, interestingly, they also say they received of the fullness of Jesus who was in the bosom of the Father, not as a separate being. They didn't say it that way. This is one God. Their testimony is that he lives. You notice they didn't say they live as if there were two separate gods. That's right. Their testimony was based on a fundamental Christian understanding and experience that Christ is God and God is Christ. Yeah, exactly. So this fifth lecture of faith is the one that was in the Doctrine and Covenants, later suppressed and finally taken out. Uh, after it had been canonized as a genuine revelation of Scripture. And here's what the fifth lecture says. There are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things. They are the Father and the Son. The Father being a personage of spirit. The Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, a personage of tabernacle possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit. The question, how many personages are there in the Godhead? The answer, two, the Father and the Son. Question, what is the Father? The answer, he is a personage of glory and power. Question, what is the Son? Answer. First, he is a personage of tabernacle. Secondly, and being a personage of tabernacle, was made or fashioned like unto a man, or being in the form and likeness of a man. And thirdly, he is also in the likeness of the personage of the Father. Now, the lectures of faith were included into the DNC in 1834, and they were taken out in 1921 when a systemized theological harmonization of God was made in the church because of the conflict of the various uh, doctrinal issues between not only between the scriptures, uh, as, as I've shown, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Progate Price, the Bible, and the Book of Mormon, but the various teachings of the temple endowment, of the creator gods in the temple endowment, which led Brigham Young off into the Adam-God controversial idea. And nobody can figure out who's who, what's where, how, which, why, when, and who. And so, and, and I have some further information in my podcast. I've been sharing this information on my podcast on the backyardprofessor.org. Uh, but I wanted to give you this visual of this first vision because 
It is amazingly the papyri that is the line of demarcation that shows us Joseph Smith was just typically Christian in his understanding and his teachings and his translations and his revelations and his letters and his writings up to 1835. And after that, he went off the rails into some really fantastically fun stuff to study for us and our point of view. But in the process of ignoring his description of the 1832 first vision, the 1835, which changed in the official 1838. Isn't it interesting that they would rather officialize a later changed document as the truth, as the church? At this point, we feel, we believe, we found enough historical nuances and evidences from the way the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency have handled the history of the church that we're very skeptical about their official doctrines anyway. And interestingly enough, this is precisely the subject that Charles Harrell and I are going to talk about this up and coming Sunday. He is the author of that magnificent book. I've got it here somewhere. This is my doctrine. You don't want to miss Sunday's show at six o'clock, man. Charles Harrell is spectacular. And I've got I've got some great slides we're going to show. And we're going to talk about the, the idea of how doctrine develops. Now, see, this probably makes Mormon apologists squirm and wiggle and wonder also, doesn't it? Because you use that word development and they go, uh, what? Wait, whoa, hold it. There is no development. God told him the truth and he taught it to us. That's what they want you to think. Yes, that's true. That That is their official um, apologetic, but the historical evidence doesn't bear that out. Is it any wonder that they can't stand history? Because, of course, if truth comes through the history, how can they be a church of truth if they're trying to either get rid of the history or change it? Because the truth is not good enough for them because it doesn't fit their image of what they think God should be like. See, we always end up blaming God for most of everything because, oh, well, he didn't do it the way I would have done it. Uh, no kidding, cowboy. <laughs> so, History doesn't verify our biases. History doesn't verify the biases of the Mormon leaders at all. And so they don't like the history. So they present this phony narrative. I, I wish I could call it something else. I they present this makeover of history. Is that any more charitable? I don't know. I'm trying to work hard here to be charitable. But it is damning to the faith when you have to lie about the truth in order to help people gain a testimony. I personally don't see how that works. Yeah. <laughs> it can't work very well that way. <laughs> Maybe it is just me. I'm willing to entertain that for a moment, but it's not because I'm verifying it through the historical analysis. So anyway, that that's basically what I wanted to get across. 
and I appreciate y'all showing up. I know this was spur of the moment. I apologize. And it's an odd time. It's Tuesday evening, so it's not my normal routine. But uh, I, I have some great guests coming up. I have a Jewish scholar who is also an expert on Joseph Smith's environment, truly a double PhD candidate, Colby Townsend. He is going to be on my show. We will be having some sessions together. I'm super thrilled about that. I have Charles Harrell. I have Dan Bogle coming back on in early January. I just recently had Dennis R. McDonald, the biblical and classical scholar. He will be back on. I have potentials, hopefully, for having Don Bradley on the show. We are talking. So, I mean, there's some exciting future broadcasts coming up. In the meantime, I am also doing my own research and analysis. I have people who are researching materials and sending them to me and saying, what do you think of this? That's what Paul Osborne did with this first vision. And I told him, I said, you know, that information is fabulous. I would be willing to make a podcast for that. And so thank you, Paul Osborne. Credit goes to you, my friend. So anyway, you guys, I'm going to, uh, I'm blowing up. Uh-oh. I hope I'm not blowing up. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, hey, Paul, you're here. Welcome, my friend. I was just bragging about you. I just did your first vision information. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I hope I did it justice. I had some fantastic, beautiful slides. So Chris Murphy, good to see you. Mark Crispin, you're always. Yeah, yeah, I will. Buy some lemon flavor Theraflu. I, I will. Um Oh, as a podcaster. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. And this is picking up steam. I mean, let, let's face it. I'm small meat and potatoes. I, I don't, I don't do nearly as good an entertainment as anybody else. And, uh, I, I love the information, the historical, the scholarship, the deep dives and stuff like that. But, uh, I do my best and I bring you good quality information. And because of that, I end up having good quality audiences like everyone else under this umbrella organization that Mormon Discussion Inc. has. So we're very fortunate and blessed. We do appreciate you audiences and we appreciate your support. So thank you for everything you do. Hey, Debbie, uh, welcome. I, I know, well, there wasn't a notification, Debbie. Sorry. I just kind of jumped on here real quick. And of course, and if you're subscribed, you should have got the ding ding. It's okay. Uh, I'm just wrapping up, but you can, you can watch the, uh, the video. It's a good one on the historical evolution of Joseph Smith's first vision and the serious significance of the 1832 account and the serious fatal flaw in the Mormon doctrine of deity, which is why they tried to suppress that 1832 account. Paul Osborne, who is also here in the chat, he's the man that I got most of the information from. So he is the gentleman. So anyway, oh, thank you, Debbie Joe. You are a sweetheart. I do hope you're getting better. I, I, I see you talking in chat about your your issues and all, and uh, we're all we're all praying for you and hoping the best for you, giving you hugs. Everybody do a group hug with Debbie Joe. We love our audience members. So you guys rock. You're awesome. 
Okay, you guys. Yeah, thank you for thanking Paul, Mark. That's very important. Paul has some magnificent materials on geographical Book of Mormon issues that I am working on putting together as well. And it's largely because of Paul, among others, uh, Brian Hoglib. I just talked to Brian Hoglib on the phone the other day. I'm going to try to get him on the show too. Truly, yeah, he uh, he's a good man, but um, it's because of these guys that I studied and took seriously the book of Abraham papyri instead of listening to the LDS apologetic side of things. And uh, Dan Vogel also, boy, you guys, I mean, if, if I'm good at all, which is questionable, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I think Isaac Newton got that one right, man. So anyway, uh, oh, Richard Petchak, Yeah. Yeah. Please hit the like button for me if you would. I hate to be self-serving, but don't forget to go to the backyardprofessor.org and uh, even just a small recurring donation, you know, dollar a month, five bucks a month, $10 a month, $200 a day, whatever you can afford would be very greatly appreciated. And we do appreciate you regardless of whether you donate or not. Don't let that worry you. Come along. Let's, let's learn together. That's what's fun. Yeah. You know, the church, did you guys see my Dennis McDonald interview the other night? I loved his response when I said, uh, yeah, the, the Mormon church teaches that you can believe anything you want to just don't talk about it around here in church. And he just roared with laughter. He thought that was funnier than apple pie, man. And it is come to think of, you know, yeah, believe anything you want, just shut up about it. Well, if they're going to do that with us in church, then let's all get together here on the internet and let's talk about it here on YouTube, on my podcasts, on Mormonism Live with Bill Rill and Radio Free Mormon, and on the uh, Almost Awakened podcast, and on Rami Umptum Ruminations, and on Nemo, all of us, you know, on John DeLynn, Mormon Stories. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it here, you know. Where will you go if you leave the church? We're going to go to the Backyard Professor's YouTube channel. We're going to go to Mormon Discussion, Inc. We're going to go to John DeLynn and Nemo and several others. And don't forget my dear friend and good brother, Derek Lambert of Myth Vision and Neil at the Gnostic Informant. Those two are rocking and they have invited me onto their shows again. I will be on their shows again. And I am going to have them on mine also. So we're, that's in the works as well. So, I mean, really, truly, the next couple of months, we are going to have some spectacular guests. I'm going to keep trying to do research and share periodically like I did just now. I'm going to practice pre-recording some things and see how those work. I'm going to make a recording with some guests. Then I will take that recording and I will put it up on the live stream so that you guys will see it and you'll be able to have the chat, but it'll be pre-recorded. I've never done one, so I'm a little bit nervous about trying that. I just talked with Bill the other night on the phone. He assured me it's a piece of cake. He walked me through it. So maybe I'll try a, a test case of one here pretty quick and just see how it works. So you guys be patient with me and I do appreciate you being patient with me. I know you are, man, uh, but I'm not very electronic guru, but I'm working on it. I'm catching up. I'm getting better and better as the days go by. So, Hey, I will go drink a beer. Okay. Let's all break and go get something good to drink. Whatever it is you love to drink. And I'm going to head out need to be discussed in sacrament meeting. It does Chris, but it's not going to. 
And that's okay because we're no longer just stuck and beholden to sacrament meetings and Sunday schools. Oh, another thing I'm going to do, I'm going to start a new series as well. And this is why I want to start recording videos. This year, I'm going to do a lesson-by-lesson -lesson commentary on the church manual this year for the New Testament. This year, the church is studying the New Testament. I'm going to do a lesson-by-lesson -lesson commentary, and I'm going to put in everything that they leave out, and I'm going to unmormonize what they Mormonize so that we can at least get an idea of what the Bible is supposed to be discussing. And that'll be quite fun to do. Uh, I haven't been to church for so long. I don't know how they do the priesthood manuals anymore. I don't even know if they have Sunday school anymore. They've got it down to two hours. I don't know what they do for instruction. They don't want to instruct you anymore. They just want to, you to give them money. So, but I'm going to find, I'm going to find what they're studying and then I'll, uh, I'm going to do a lot of information on New Testament, but I'm going to do the deep dives. I'm going to look at the manuscripts. I'm going to do the, the Bart Ehrman approach. I'm going to do the Dale Allison Jr. approach. I'm going to do the Dennis R. McDonald approach. And I'm going to bring in the good literatures. And I'm going to analyze the Hebrew and the Greek. I will be translating the Greek. I will get to the biblical scholarships uh, of, of various scholars and and lexicons and dictionaries there really is something to the idea i know mormonism damages us mentally spiritually psychologically and all i get that but no i mean they damage us mentally uh by poo-pooing by minimizing the importance of getting to the original language and you think, well, I mean, it's been translated by what? There's what, 300 different translations of the New Testament. Nothing new can come out anymore. Don't even kid yourself. That's just not true. There is still much to discover. And I am excited that it's the New Testament this year. So we're going to do a bunch of stuff like that on this channel. I hope you'll stick with me. Uh, tell your friends all about it. I'm I'm growing somewhat. Uh, I really enjoy doing this. I love sharing it with you. I love chatting with you guys and having you in chat. I appreciate everything. You guys have a good evening. I am going to sign off. It looks like folks are starting to leave. I can't blame you. It's Tuesday night. It's time to go grab some dinner and have a good movie night or something. I'm going to go to bed. I've, I've had the flu. I'm sick like crazy. So I slept half the day. So, all right, you guys, I was going to do this a couple nights ago. I got it prepared, but here I am late as usual. So, yeah, baby, Paul Osborne. My hat's off to you, brother. Thank you so much for all your hard work at helping me get enlightened. We hit a home run together, buddy. Actually, we've been playing football. I threw the touchdown pass and you caught it threw the football down and then uh, Moksha ran in for the two point conversion, right? <laughs> yeah. If, if you're not on the message boards, that's an inside joke with Paul and I, but yeah, we're like a two man football team and we are making scores and touchdowns. So much, much more to come from his mighty pen and my mighty mouth. <laughs> uh, all right, you guys, thank you so much. I do appreciate you. Don't forget Sunday and if I can get away with it, I'll do a recording and it'll be put on again this week. I'm going to try to increase my uh, 
output and don't forget to listen to my podcasts. I, I have them about a half hour to 40 minutes. So they're just the right length of time. You can ask Paul Osborne. He seems to like them a lot. So, all right. I love y'all, but I got to go.